Welcome back to Catholic Conversations. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. And today, well, we're going to talk about an unknown saint. Well, she's not quite a saint yet. She's a blessed at the moment. Ryan Grant with Mediatrix Press is going to talk about this mysterious unknown saint, a dear friend of St. Alphonsus Liguori. And this particular saint, it was said that what she did helped combat the Enlightenment errors. And I firmly believe that the Enlightenment errors, the errors of the 18th century philosophers, are the same errors that we are fighting with today. So I think it's going to be really great. Today is Wednesday, January 25th. And I got to say, yesterday, I would consider it a success. We survived a two-hour-long show, and I just got to, you know, pat myself on the back, uh, back a little bit and say, you know, thank you, Rocky. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. See, at least somebody's on my side. If, if Rocky's not on my side, then who will be? Am I right? And so I I decided, you know, I was thinking about five o'clock would be a great time because that's when people are heading home from work, school, picking up their, well, I guess they're picking up their kids probably around three o'clock, but the end of the day is starting to settle down and it might be a good time to chat about these kind of things. And so let me know what you are up to. And at the end of the show, we're going to dive into the questions, comments, concerns, soapboxes, negativities, positivities, or anything in between. And we talk about whatever it is that you want. But today, so number one, we're going to start off. You and I are going to do a deep dive into chapter one of the Gospel of Mark. And here's a question for you. When our Lord went into the desert, did he do battle with wild beasts and demons? That's the question I have for you. The second thing is, do you know who Jesse James Decker and her husband, Eric Decker, do you know who they are? She's a famous country singer, and I think she was on Dancing with the Stars as well. And he is a former NFL player, and they recently were in the news for a rather strange reason, I would say. And we'll talk about that at 15 past the hour. Then we will have Mr. Ryan Grant with the Mediatrics Press to discuss the Blessed Mary Celeste Crostarosa, a mystic and foundress. And so we're going to find out about how she's the antidote to our modern errors. Then after we're done at the next hour, the top of the next hour, and in the, we're going to discuss the conversion of St. Paul and what he teaches you and I, because he tells us very clearly in Scripture how we can do apostolate. So when St. Paul speaks, we should listen. So I'm going to share with you what St. Paul had to say about doing apostolate. And then finally, at the end of the show, I want to interact with you. The last 30 minutes of the show is dedicated to you. So make sure you start commenting and sharing this with others. That way we can start sparking a conversation. Whatever you want to talk about, let's have that conversation. And ultimately, another thing I want to be able to talk about with you is what uh, do you want from this kind of conversation? Do you want more of these kind of things? Or are you like, eh, I could do without it. And so let me know what you think about these live streams. Should I do more? Uh, Should it be daily? Should it be weekly? A couple times a week? Let me know your thoughts down below in the live chat. All right. Without further ado, let's jump into the Memorare, and then we'll go into the Gospel of Mark. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known, that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. 
O mother of the word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. The gospel according to St. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in the prophecy of Isaiah, Behold, I am sending before thee that angel of mine who is to prepare the way for thy coming. There is a voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, straighten out his paths. And so it was that John appeared in the wilderness, baptizing, announcing a baptism whereby men repented to have their sins forgiven. And all the country of Judea and all those who dwelt in Jerusalem went out to see him. And he baptized them in the river Jordan while they confessed their sins. John was clothed with a garment of camel's hair and had a leather girdle about his loins. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And thus he preached, one is to come after me who is mightier than I so that I am not worthy to bend down and untie the strap of his shoes. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. At this time, Jesus came from Nazareth, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And even as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove coming down and resting upon him. There was a voice too out of heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Thereupon the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and in the desert he spent forty days and forty nights tempted by the devil. There he lodged with a beast, and there the angels ministered to him. But when John had been put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God's kingdom. They appointed, Time has, has come, he said, and the kingdom of God is near at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And as he passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Simon's brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Come and follow me. I will make you into fishers of men. And they dropped their nets immediately and followed him. Then he went a little further and saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. These two were in their boat, repairing their nets. All at once he called them, and they, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, turned aside after him. So they made their way to Capernaum. Here, as soon as the Sabbath came, he went into the synagogue and taught. And they were amazed by his teaching, for he sat there teaching them like one who had authority, not like the scribes. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. The Gospel according to St. Mark. And one thing that's interesting to note is that St. Mark's Gospel was probably inspired by St. Peter. Cornelius Alapide says as much. And a brief comment about how this commentary is working exactly. I am pulling from Cornelius Alapide, who was a famous Jesuit theologian and scripture scholar. Of, I believe it was he was of the 19th century or 18th century, rather. And I personally believe that he has probably died in the odor of sanctity and this might be a saint, but he is not currently a saint. But I, he is well known for his great commentary to be one of the greatest commentaries of Holy Scripture, second to maybe St. Thomas Aquinas and to um, the St. John Chrysostom. And so beside them, he is well-known and well-regarded as one of the greatest scripture scholars. So I use him as a interpretive aid. The second thing to know is the, the translation I'm using is actually the Knox Bible, which is a more up-to-date modern version of the douay Rheims. It was actually a favorite of Fulton Sheen. And so that's why I like to use it because it was a favorite of the great venerable Fulton Sheen. 
So anyway, back to the gospel according to St. Mark. Uh, the gospel preaching of Christ had such a beginning as Isaiah foretold. Now, what, I, what do I mean here? This was the first line, the very first verse of the gospel of Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now, some have said that this was like the title, like this is the title card, and that was what he meant to put it. But Cornelius Alapide says that really what he was trying to say is that it was by the preaching of John the Baptist and his testimony concerning Christ. Uh, he was setting up the narrative that this is what is happening. Because the gospel, we have to read that as the good news. Because St. John the Baptist was coming in and he's preaching the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was coming. Now, what happens immediately after this? It is said here, it is written in the prophecy of Isaiah. Behold, I am sending before thee that angel of mine who has prepared the way for thy coming. There is a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, straighten out his paths. Now, this is very important because the first part of this passage of this section of verse two through four is actually from the prophet Malachi. And what is Malachi predicting? Malachi is actually predicting the coming of John the Baptist and to say, John the Baptist was not sent by man. He was not sent by a worldly power. Instead, he was sent by God himself. The latter half of this is actually more important because here Cornelius Lapide says, why do you think that Mark says the prophecy of Isaiah if here he's actually quoting both Isaiah and Malachi? Why say both? Why not say both? And Cornelius Lapide says that he and wants to emphasize that the message from Isaiah is actually more important. And what is that message from him? The message from Isaiah is to do penance. It is a latter half of this. Prepare the way of the Lord, straighten out his path. It is to do penance, to reform our lives. In verse 4, we talk here about the baptism of which St. John is here. He said it was, he was announcing a baptism whereby men repented to have their sins forgiven. But we know that it is actually by our Lord's baptism that we have salvation. It was by John's baptism that we have penance, that we have repentance, that we turn away from our sins, that we can direct ourselves towards the coming of Christ. So that way we can have salvation by the baptism that Christ brings. This is a very important note for us to keep in mind because we have to be able to receive the grace that Christ is going to give us. We have to first uh, set ourselves in proper disposition in order to better receive that which our Lord desires to give us. If we do not, well, then it, it can be ineffectual because we will not seek it. You can water the ground all you want, but if there's no soil, the uh, plants will never grow. And the same thing is with us. Our Lord desires to baptize us in the waters, yet if we don't have the grace to have the faith, the grace to turn away from our sins, it becomes for us a sacrilege. So that's another thing that we should keep in mind today is a repentance of our sins and a direction to do penance and reparation for those evils that we do. The next point that I like to make is here, the Cornelius Lapide makes the points. He says that our Lord goes into the desert. So our Lord, the Holy Ghost comes upon him and directs him out into the desert. And this is important for us because our Lord here goes into the desert to do single combat with the devil. Cornelius Lapide points out that perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps 
This was a reference back to St. Anthony of the desert, or rather the opposite, because St. Anthony of the desert comes afterwards. St. Anthony of the desert going out into the desert is a reference or a semblance, a primordial light of our Lord going out into the desert. And what happened to St. Anthony when he went out into the desert? The devils appeared to him and started attacking him physically at times where he would be beaten up and bloodied and left for dead. This happened to St. Anthony of the desert many times. Cornelius Alapide wonders, did this happen to our Lord? Was our Lord molested by horrible monsters and various specters? Now, Cornelius Alapide does say, we actually don't know. It's kind of funny. It's a moment of brevity for Cornelius Alapide. He says, truly, this is an instance of brevity leading to a lack of clarity. And I think this is funny because, you know, he tries to be very sober in his commentary, but here you can actually see his frustration saying, I really want to know what our Lord encountered when he went out to the desert. But if this is true of St. Anthony, then how much more true would it be of our Lord? He does bring up that in scripture does mention that he lodged with the beast. This is interesting because if he lodged with the beast, that means there were different kind of wild animals out there and our Lord was with them as if he was Adam. Because remember, he is Adam. He is the new Adam. He came to fulfill and to fix what Adam broke. And this is very important to keep in mind. Because remember, the, in the beginning, we had perfect unity and love. And we had perfect justice. And we had perfect order. And the animals around us, did not hate us, did not attack us, did not, they were sub, sub, uh, they were, uh, oh, they obeyed man. They obeyed man in such a way that a way that your dog would obey you if it was well-trained. And that was the case with all animals. And so when our Lord came to the desert, he lodged with the beast. And the last thing I want to point out is that of the angels ministering to him. For the angels, Cornelius Lapide said, that the angels ministered to him last. It was the last thing that happened. Because first, he had to overcome the temptations of the devil. And our Lord wanted to show us that the fellowship of the angels will be ours should we overcome temptation. So let this be a imploring of you, an encouragement to you to say, fight against temptation so the angels will be your friends. All right, we're going to go to break. We'll be right back in just one minute. And when we get back, we're going to talk about these famous people and why were they were in trouble. It is here where you'll find the best marriage counselor, greatest healer, wisest teacher, and closest friend. It's a place where you'll escape the chaos of the world and find the lasting peace that only comes from God. Jesus is personally waiting to embrace you now with his divine mercy and healing love. Jesus is calling you home to his sacred heart today. Atheistic scientists claim we don't need God to explain the universe because science is sufficient to get the job done. But is this true? The answer is no, and here's the reason. Science could never negate the need for God because it can't give an exhaustive explanation of the universe. First, it relies on the inductive method in order to validate its hypotheses. As such, scientists can never be certain they've discovered every piece of data necessary to give a complete explanation. They must always be open to discovering something new that could alter their current theory. 
Furthermore, science presupposes an existing universe to observe and explain. Thus, it could never explain why the universe exists in the first place rather than not. Science has explanatory power, but not enough power to negate the need for God. I'm Carlo Broussard with a ready reason for Catholic Answers, Catholic.com. And welcome back to Catholic Conversations. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. And today we're going to talk about Jesse James Decker and her husband, Eric Decker. Have you heard of them? We're going to get into that just in just one second. In the next segment at 30 past the hour, we're going to have Ryan Grant on to talk about Blessed Mary Celeste Crostarosa. She was a mystic and foundress and a friend of St. Alphonse Liguori. We're going to talk to Ryan about how what lessons we can pull from her life to apply to the 21st century and our modern day problems. All that is going to come up at 30 past the hour. And then in the top of the next hour, we're going to talk about St. Paul and what he can teach us about doing apostolate. Because, you know, St. Paul was a great apostle. He was a great teacher and he was a great evangelizer, converted many people. So when he tells us that there's something we should probably be doing, it's a good idea that we should probably listen, right? So Jesse James Decker, have you heard that name? Do you know who that is? I personally did not know who that was. I saw this person that was uh, covered in the headlines a little while ago. It was a few months ago when this happened, but they recently came back in the news and I'll get back to that in a second. And Jesse James Decker, she had a, this, she's a uh, country singer and someone that I had not listened to before. And she was also, I believe, a member of the Dancing with the Stars. She was, she appeared on Dancing with the Stars for uh, one season. And then her husband is a former NFL star, Eric Decker. He it was with the Denver Broncos. And there was a picture that Jesse James uh, posted on Instagram, which caused a huge ruckus. And it's really what got them in the news at the beginning. And Really, before that, I've really never heard her name ever appear. And so here is this picture that she uh, posted. If you're watching online, you can see what I'm posting. There is a, She posted this picture of her kids. Uh, they all have abs. They all have six packs. Um, and people were freaking out about it. They were saying, oh, my goodness, that's terrible. Uh, it's horrible that, they, that the kids have abs. And it was kind of a weird thing. I saw it come up, and I was like, eh, whatever, not a big deal. There's a couple things that I would like to comment on about this picture, but there's something more important, and this is kind of just trying to set the stage. Uh, the one thing that I want to bring up is the lack of modesty, especially for children. It's not appropriate to put your daughters in in these kind of bikinis. You're you're trying to the culture is already trying to sexualize our children. They're already trying to put our children into this situation where where we're going to have pedophilia not too far down the road. And so that, that's a bad, that's a bad idea. And that's the sad thing is that's not what people were upset about. Nobody was upset about that. They were upset that they had abs. They thought they were like torturing the kids or something that I don't know anything about. I don't know about the health of kids and whether or not kids can have abs. Is that a possibility without it being dangerous to them? I don't know. I have no idea. So I'm not going to comment on that. But what I will comment on is so she became in the news and because of this, it was brought to my attention that she was trying to get her husband to have a vasectomy. Now, this is something that really does bother me. And I want to come back to the topic of modesty. I probably won't be able to talk about it today, but it will be something that I talk about in the future. But for right now, let me pivot and talk about the vasectomy issue. 
See, a vasectomy is wrong. It is bad. And most people can't articulate why. And I want to talk about that. But before I do, I want to get your, uh, the, show you what happened, what his, the husband was thinking about this whole situation. See, the Daily Wire reported on this story, which I was kind of surprised about. I was like, Does, is this really something that's, that is useful for public information? Is that kind of voyeuring to know what's going on in private person's lives? The only reason why I'm talking about it is because I think it's a good jumping off point to talk about something in the culture that applies to you and me personally. So she said, I keep asking him, go make that appointment. And he won't. He just won't do it. She told U.S. Weekly during a recent interview, he says it takes like his manhood away from him. So he's just going to leave it, I guess. And that's an interesting point. He said that it takes away his manhood. Is that true? In a sense, it does. In a sense, it doesn't. Let me start with why it doesn't. It's not essential to man to be able to have children. There are some men who never have children because they join religious life. They become priests. They give up. They become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. There are some people who are born with defects, and they're still men. There are some men who are injured. Something happens to them, and they are not able to conceive children any further. And that are, those are all real men. They, they are still men, despite the fact that they have a, this disability. Now, in a sense... She's wrong or she uh, or he is right about it making his manhood, taking his manhood away from him. Because part, what does it mean to be a man, right? To be a man is to be a provider. To be a man is to be a protector. It is to lead souls to heaven, to generate, to give and it's reflected in the sexual act, in the marital act. In the marital act, the man gives and the woman receives. And this is a reflection of what man and woman really is, fundamentally. And so to take away that generative power of man is to, in a sense, strip him of his manhood. And I think that's very important to take away because it is against the natural law to sterilize ourselves. And I think Eric Decker knows this intuitively. He may not be able to articulate why. He just has this feeling that it's not right. And the world, the culture, his wife are trying to tell him, maybe his doctor even, are trying to tell him, no, it's fine, you can do it. But the stirring in his heart, he knows it's wrong. And that's why he's resistant to it. So the former Denver Broncos player said, it's a little power being taken. And that's true. It is a little power being taken, and I wouldn't even say a little power. It's a great power being taken. It's the power to, to generate life and to sterilize that. That is something that you should not take lightly, and you should never be done, but it definitely shouldn't be taken lightly. And he says as much. He says, you don't know where life will take you in the next five years. We have amazing kids, so I don't want a lot of love being taken. This is contrary to what the wife was saying. And she says, we're not doing anything to truly prevent more kids. However, she kind of said, it's not really the plan to have more kids. Said, I feel as of right now, it's probably a no to more kids. It sounds like she doesn't want more kids, but he does. And I like the way he worded it. He said, I don't want a lot of love being taken. 
because he realizes by sterilizing himself, he is preventing more love because we don't have this piece of the pie theology where I only have 100% love and then I have to divvy it out. So I'm going to give 60% to God. I'll give 20% to my wife and then I'll divvy up the other 40% or the other 20% between my kids, 5% to you, 5% to you, 5% to you. That's not how love works. Love grows. It's like a fire. If you have a fire and whenever you light something on fire, it's not that the, the fire that you had diminishes. The fire spreads and then it grows into a larger fire. And that's the same way love works. And to sterilize yourself is to diminish your love. To keep your love small. Now, I do want to go to the theological point with the little time we have left in the segment and point out that a visectomy is evil. It is against the natural law. All sterilization and all attacks against um, life, contraception of any kind, is wrong. The primary end of matrimony is the procreation and the education of children. That's the primary end. There are other secondary ends that are very important, but the primary end is the procreation and the education of children, the procreation. So if you thwart that act, if you choose to reject procreation, well, then you've done something evil. You have gone against the primary end of marriage. Now, I want to read to you what Pope Pius XI had to say about this in Cassie Canubi. He said, no reason, however grave, may be put forward by which anything intrinsically against nature may become conformable to nature and morally good. Since, therefore, the conjugal act is destined primarily by nature for the begetting of children, those who, in exercising it, deliberately frustrate its natural power and purpose, sin against nature and commit a deed which is shameful and intrinsically vicious. Small wonder, therefore, if Holy Writ bears witness that the divine majesty regards with greatest detestation this horrible crime and at times has punished it with death. The Catholic Church, through our mouth, proclaims anew any use whatsoever of matrimony exercised in such a way that the act is deliberately frustrated in its natural power to generate life is an offense against the law of God and of nature, and those who indulge in such are branded with the guilt of a grave sin. This is very, very important. Now, I think there's two things that are important here. One is the fact that this is the teaching of the church. So if you are Catholic, we have to submit our mind and will to this and recognize that it is a mortal sin to get a vasectomy or to use contraception in general. The second point is that this is according to the natural law that we know intuitively, we know by our nature, by looking at what the marital act is for, what is conjugal relation for, that it's for the procreation and therefore to frustrate that end by any means is to do violence against natural law. So we don't even need to appeal to divine revelation to know this, but divine revelation makes it clearer and, set, and shows that even death was punishable, was, was, a, as a punish, was a punishment for this crime. Now, it would be Onan. Whenever he committed Onanism, 
which I won't go into because it's a family show. Whenever he committed onanism, he was struck dead. That's very important to keep in mind. And in Prumer's Moral Theolo uh, Theology Manual, it says that a person does not have an absolute dominion or right over his body. This is important because the, the culture today says, my body, my choice. Obviously, they're referring to abortion, but abortion has become a form of contraception. Now, this is very important to keep in mind. A person does not have absolute dominion over his right over his, over, or right over his body. The other thing is that sterilization is a form of self-mutilation. And self-mutilation immediately comes to what comes to mind is transgenderism. I truly believe that the effects of contraception naturally resulted in gay marriage and naturally resulted in the transgender movement and naturally resulted in no-fault divorce and destruction of the family. All these things came from the beginning with contraception. And vasectomy is a particularly egregious form of contraception. Now, the same thing if you're getting your tubes tied as a woman, I forget what a, what a female version of vasectomy is called, but that is equally as bad. It is something that frustrates what it means to be a woman. You're, you're intentionally destroying the natural end to which your body was made. That is something that we should not and cannot do. So think about that today. So thank you to Jesse James and Eric Decker for letting us talk about this, giving us an opportunity to talk about this. In the next, uh, next segment, we're going to talk to Ryan Grant about the Enlightenment errors and how we can fight them. All this in about one minute. I'll see you then. I once had a gentleman come up to me and say he didn't think the principle of non-contradiction was true, that perhaps something could be and not be in the same respect at the same place and time. Now, skepticism doesn't get any more radical than this. The principle of non-contradiction is the principle upon which all human knowledge is based. So how do we defend it? It's pretty simple. A skeptic can only speak against the principle if his words have the intended meaning and not the opposite. For example, if a skeptic says the principle is false, well, then he must intend the statement to mean what it expresses and not the opposite, namely, the principle is true. But this presupposes the principle and thus undermines his attempt to deny it. So a skeptic can't deny the principle of non-contradiction without ending in self-defeat. I'm Carlo Broussard with a ready reason for Catholic Answers, Catholic.com. Hey, Donnie, who were the first two people God created? Adam and Eve. There you go. And what did we inherit from them? Original sin. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. Welcome back to Catholic Conversations. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. And today, we're going to be talking to Ryan Grant. I'm waiting for him to jump on. And we're going to talk about Blessed Mary Celeste Crostarosa, mystic and foundress. This great woman, I was reading through her book about her life, and I was so impressed because this holy woman was, one, she was friends with St. Alphonsus Liguori 
which is pretty pretty awesome in itself. But she also, it was said that she, by her life, fought against the Enlightenment errors. And I was really surprised to, uh, to see that because you think, how does a nun who's cloistered fight against modern errors? And so I thought that was an interesting conversation to have. So when Ryan Grant joins us, we're going to be talking about that. But in the next hour, on the top of the hour, we're going to talk about the conversion of St. Paul and how St. Paul, can, we can, what we can learn from his life and how St. Paul, by his very actions, by the way he lived his life, and why his actual words, we can learn how to do apostolate well. So that's coming up in the next hour. And then at the end of the show, at 30 past the next hour, I'm going to be interacting with you. So leave a comment down below. Uh, we'll be talking in a live chat. So leave your questions, comments, or concerns, soapbox and negativities, positivities, or anything in between. And we'll get to that in the next hour. Uh, but joining us right now is Ryan Grant with Mediatrix Press. We are talking about his, the book that he published not too long ago about this wonderful, blessed, soon to be hopefully saint, blessed Mary Celeste Crosta Rosa, mystic and foundress, about the how she fights against the modern eras um, created by the Enlightenment. Good, uh, good morning, or I guess at this point, good afternoon, uh, Mr. Grant. I'm sure it's morning somewhere. <laughs> right, exactly. It's morning somewhere. It's five o'clock somewhere, and it's morning somewhere. It's five o'clock here, I guess. Um, so to start right. off, you know, I, I thought it was interesting at the introduction of the book, it said, St. Alphonsus was raised up by God to combat one of the two great evils of the 18th century, Jansenism. But in the venerable Mary Celeste, we have the living refutation of the second evil, the errors and blasphemies of the philosophers, for they denied mm -hmm. providence, grace, and the whole supernatural world. I was thinking, you know, I wouldn't have expected a cloistered nun to be the one they would categorize as combating the Enlightenment errors, and then the guy who was going out and doing missions everywhere as fighting against the Jansenists. It seems like it would be flipped. And so what do you think about uh, that? So it's interesting because what they're doing is they're recognizing the, the, the realities of the spiritual work. That is that uh, it, it's the cloistered nuns that are upholding the, in the world. It's the monks in prayer in the desert that are upholding the world by their prayers. And so, so much of the time, the spiritual mission, those who really commune with Christ and really get close to him, those are the ones who are the real movers and shakers in the world. And we've noticed the world's gotten really bad of late and of course it's because that wherever the state hasn't thrown out the cloistered convents the unfortunately the authorities of the church are trying to do the same so you know but back in the 18th century it was somewhat of a similar thing you had governments trying to crack down on convents on monasteries who would have thunk um catholic monarchs you have this doctrine called febronism and febronism is the idea that the state is the guarantor of the rights of the church and so the, the state, therefore, should own all church property and all seven. This is pre-French Revolution, but a lot of these ideas get worked into the French Revolutionary Code and everything. It become part of the, uh, the civil law in Europe following, uh, you know, Napoleon. So they are, um, you know, so the idea is that we got a convents, you know, that in monasteries that, you know, provide services to the community. Hey, we want those. But the ones that are just praying and begging, we don't want them around. So you have this guy named Joseph II in uh, Austria. One of the things he does is he kicks out the Cartusians. He kicks out the Discalced Carmelites out of Austria. He kicks out um, whole whole mass of uh, groups that are not seen 
as he was even thinking about the Capuchins, except they had such a place with his family in so many different things. He wasn't going to touch that one. But uh, he actually sponsors the formation of a council in Italy in order to spread a lot of these ideas. It was called the Council of Pistoia. And um, I, I like to call it the, the Vatican II run through right? <laughs> because it was in many ways a pre-Vatican II. It had a lot of ideas. Um, which later would be popular 200 years, which at oh, that wow. time uh, were, were quite revolutionary. Actually, they're still revolutionary, and they're still not good ideas. But <laughs> besides that, they come into vogue anyway since Vatican II, um, and that's the association. But with Pistoia, it was a, it was a local council that had big backing. And uh, Scipione di Ricci, for example, is the Archbishop of Capua, unless I'm mistaken, or is he a different city? But he was a big promoter of this thing. One of the things they pushed, of course, and this is one of the, the ostensible reasons for kind of linking it with Vatican II, is vernacular. They pushed the, one of their oh, big wow. things is that they wanted vernacular. They wanted the mass in vernacular, and they wanted the uh, the liturgy, the breviary in vernacular. And so the, Pope Pius VI is not sure what to do about this because of the power of the Austrian Emperor Joseph II. He's like, he's just sitting back in Rome with his finger in the wind, just waiting to see how this is all going to go. So then the people rise up and do it for him. But then when the people hear about all this, they're, they're incensed and they go to the, the warehouses where all these vernacular missiles and breveries have been placed and they burn it down. Oh, wow. And this is the kernel of the support that eventually is going to fight Napoleon when the French Revolution comes to Italy in the next generation. So, uh, but that, anyway, so that really does more than anything to stop all the movements of the Council of Pistoia and Fibronism in Italy. Pius VI gets some spine in issues, uh, Octorum Fide, which condemns most of what they promulgated there at the Council, and, and a lot, lot of revolutionary ideas that eventually be worked into the French revolutionary framework. It was like a, a pre-run for all these things. So all of this was seen, though, as being part of the Enlightenment, being part of an enlightened man in the, the modern age and so we, we we don't have these crazy superstitions like they used to have, like praying to saints and purgatory and so many different things that they that they all these these silly peasants do. We're enlightened, gentlemen. We we know better. And on the flip side, you have people who are so enlightened that uh, their brains have literally fallen out, and they're called <laughs> libertines. They're people that there is there there almost amoral that they don't recognize there is any morality that there is any good or evil so they uh they just do what they want and uh we know where do what thou want do what thou wilt gets you right if you think of alistair crowley and whatnot so that uh, so you have the the horrors the moral horrors of libertinism and uh, which becomes a big scourge in in europe you have uh you know all the intellectual errors are kind of on, on every front and so this, this is kind of the situation in the 18th century, which, of course, again, leads into the French Revolution. And the French Revolution sees itself, uh, just as Marxism will in the 20th century, as being a scientifically accurate to the letter. Every last thing we do is science. It's science, everyone. Trust the science. Trust, we yeah. science harder <laughs> than anyone's ever scienced. We're making a new <laughs> calendar, baby. And it's science. You know, you can't, only crazy, um, you know, nuns will... Or, or uh, peasants or backwards-minded priests would ever oppose anything like this. Oh, right? no, that's a great point. And, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting about it was this idea of in the 18th century Enlightenment, especially Kant and Hume, and we see the, those mm -hmm. same errors today all the time. When I talk to atheists or or people who are more agnostic, they'll say the, these <sighs> these ideas that come from Kant and Hume, like, 
oh, well, of course Jesus didn't rise from the dead because people don't rise from the dead. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's why it's significant. Because if people just naturally rose from the dead, it wouldn't be a big deal, right? Um, So they they completely dismiss any sense of the miraculous um, that could possibly happen. And you you were talking about this a second ago. And uh, Mm -hmm. the Enlightenment errors, it was 18th century. That was a long time ago, at least in terms of our own minds. And yet we're still seeing it right now. You know, the period that we're hearkening back to is about 370 to 350 years ago. And, you know, some of it sounds exactly the same. You know, the the more things change, the more they're the same. Uh, Hume, for example, philosophically is basically, um, you know, you, you can't trust you know, what, what's mediated to you by your senses. You can't, you know, it, it's almost to the point of being like a full-out skeptic. He's not quite, he never gets that far. But, uh, you know, and this heavily influences Kant. And Kant before that had more or less been some kind of, uh, you know, late German Aristotelian in his thinking. And then, but it, but Hume kind of hits in lock, but especially Hume, it hits him like a bomb. And, and he stops and he thinks about this. And, that you know, of course, as one professor I had said, um, the, the, and Kant did the dumbest thing he could have. He trusted Hume, <laughs> <laughs> but so, but then you know, see, so he picks up on this, and then he works this whole philosophy. Yeah, if you if the senses do not correctly mediate to us what we see in the world, then um, which is actually true on a spiritual side, but not in a metaphys in, in a in a physical sense, it's not true. But in a spiritual sense, it is, and they've got it all warped backwards, you know. So. Um, you, you have a, you're looking around, but you're not seeing things actually the way they are. It's your brain projecting on to the thing that actually exists. And then Fichte rings from Kant while he's on his, Fichte was one of Kant's best students. And he gets from Kant an admission on his deathbed that, that the noumena, the thing that actually is, it's not really there. Because, hey, you say you can't know this thing, you can't see this thing, you can't actually touch this thing. Let's stop with the BS and just say it's not there. And Kant, you know, says, you know, you're right. You're actually right about that. So Fichte moves on and he starts developing things like uh, Averroes' transcendental ego from the Middle Ages, which actually is a big influence on Jung in uh, the last century. But um, yeah, we are uh, we're about to go to a to a break in just a second. And when we get back, I want to try to see how exactly does this saint respond to these errors? How does a Catholic spirituality, especially since it is a spirituality of, a, of the Carmelites, a, such an intense spirituality. How do they combat this idea of the enlightenment and what can we apply to our current life today? All that and more in just one second. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Is the Bible sufficient to answer all questions about Christian living and church life? Well, the answer is definitively no. There isn't agreement on scores of doctrinal issues, such as the effects of baptism, who can receive communion, once saved, always saved, abortion, or how about eligibility for marriage after divorce? So here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, fruit analysis. Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, who are the fathers of non-Catholic Christianity, did not rid the unbiblical practices they despised, but instead turned out to be the progenitors of some 50 denominations and scores of divergent beliefs. Secondly, natural reason. Well, if the Bible alone is supposed to clarify all beliefs, the very fact that such division prevails is actually proof that an arbiter of doctrine is desperately needed. And thirdly, the golden twins. Sacred scripture and sacred tradition will always prevail as the foundation of all Christian truth, doctrines, and beliefs. Remember, identical twins come from one egg. 
Donnie, what are the mysteries that we pray on the rosary? Glorious, ominous, joyful, and powerful. There you go. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. We're back, and today we're talking to Ryan Grant with Mediatrics Press. The book is Blessed Mary Celeste Crosta Rosa, Mystic and Foundress, and we were talking about in the last segment about the Enlightenment errors, this skepticism, this scientism, this idea of trust the science, capital S, trademark over the E, that was prevalent in the 18th century. Sounds kind of like today, don't you think? And I'm pretty sure Hume's middle name was actually Fauci, if I remember correctly. Uh, but anyway, the Blessed Mary Celeste, she was a Carmelite nun. And then later she was a foundress of the, Redemptor, the Redemptorist Tines, the female Redemptorist, Redemptors, and the, with Alfonso Liguori, a friend of his. So my question for Ryan Grant, thank you for joining us, Ryan, is how does her life, how, did, how on earth can a life of this little nun devoted to God and devoted to her, his, uh, the spirituality of the Carmelites. How does that combat the errors of the enlightenment? In the same way that the, you know, the entirety of the Christian faith does <clears throat> by, you know, by basically the miraculous vision, she receives the emphasis on her Lord as redeemer is actually another one of the, the major focuses of her visions and the rule, which God gave her, which ultimately becomes St. Alphonsus's rule in founding the Redemptorist. And it's like, we hearken back to the, the with the resurrection um, where, you know, the, the, those without faith will deny it where they'll come up with dumb excuses for it. It's like, well, maybe Jesus rose in their hearts, you know, type of thing. And which unfortunately I've heard from the pulpit from priests who are still currently, uh, you know, in good standing with their bishop somehow. But um, really in, in truth, if we don't believe in the resurrection, we've got nothing. We absolutely have nothing. So that not only do miracles happen, but the mystical relationship between, uh, you know, God and the saint. And so it, so that, you know, throughout the course of her life, as she's, she's founding the rule and as she's, you know, moving forward in her spiritual life is meriting, you know, more graces and more, um, you know, you know, more increase in, in the, you know, the, her supernatural merit, supernatural virtues, and also married in the grace that's helping St. Alphonsus and, and uh, the, you know, the first redemptress as they preach against these very same evils in Italy. Wow. That's yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great point. And, St. Alphonsus being that great missionary, the, the fact that I had no idea that his, that he received the rule from this little nun. I thought that he had I come up either, with his actually. own. Yeah. yeah I, until I saw this book, I didn't either. And, and I was just going through it and uh, I just found that it kind of fell out of my chair. It's like, I had no idea they were, they, they were so connected. Actually, I, I didn't even know there were redemptorist nuns either. Yeah, know, me until, neither. <laughs> I, I remember something about it vaguely from reading A Life of Alphonsus many years ago. But um, yeah, I actually didn't know until I got into this thing. I said, wow, that's amazing. Um, you know, how close, but you know, it's funny, like some lives won't 
bring out certain things depending on what the scope of the author had in mind. So with, uh, you know, the authors might not have done the work to really know what a place she had in the whole thing mm -hmm. like in some of Alphonsus's work. But it's a similar thing in the, the biography of, Saul Car of Cardinal Baronius, um, the, the authoress who wrote it, she, um, you know, a lot of the research had, hadn't really been done outside of Italy in the St. Robert Bellarmine. She had no idea that, that Bellarmine and Baronius were absolutely very close friends, as close as anyone in the the, the oratory. And so it, it, they, there's many, many testimonies, primary, you know, contemporary documents relating it. But you won't find it in the biography of Baronius because the authoress actually wasn't aware of it. So that, that I think that's a, the uh, the type of thing that happened, unfortunately. Yeah, that, that was really fascinating to me. And I was as I'm skimming through the book, you know, a few things really stood out to me. And one thing in particular that I'm just thinking of was how she meditated upon the phrase, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh to the Father but by me. In the book, it says, she was allowed to see the admirable work of the divine union in an upright soul. She saw how Jesus is the way by his works and virtues as applied to our soul, the truth by the light of faith infused into us, the life by the grace which makes us live for the life of our divine head. That it's, it's so it was so stunning to me seeing these quotes jump out at me, and how this this little nun had this love for our Lord, and, but not just this kind of emotional love that we think of today, but an understanding that our Lord is the way, the truth, and the life. That everything He said is is in fact true, and He does it not out of some sentimentality, but out of movement of His will towards us. And I just thought that was so profound, especially since you see the lives of, of these um, modernist, of these enlightenment uh, peoples. And oftentimes, not all of them, but oftentimes they live a life so that's so I, I, almost sad more than anything else. It's sad. And I think that that really, like, you can get stuck in your ivory tower. You can get stuck in all these things. But at the end of your life, what do you have? And I think that's interesting. What are your thoughts, Ryan Grant? Well, it's ultimately what is every single person, you know, called to. Um, I, I made some uh, mocking jokes about Vatican II before, but one of the things that Vatican II talks about is that every single person is called to holiness. Um, I believe it's in Gaudium et Spes. I might be mistaken which document. Pretty sure that's the one, though, um, where it says that all of the Christ's faithful are called to the, the summit of contemplative life. And whether we'll all get there is another question, but by our baptism, that's actually what we should tend to, really. That's really what we should be moving toward. But most of us, we never quite get there. And you can think of various parables of Christ about uh, you're like the, the seed being sown and falling in, in uh, ground that's not quite suited to it or, or whatever else, some of which deals with predestination, some deals with the circumstances and evils of the world. But ultimately that everyone is called to it. it even in you just won't you won't have the same level of it if you're like managing a house and managing a family but uh, if you're in the world um although you have uh, blessed anna marie taigi who is um she's she's a wife she's got a truck driver of a husband who ultimately is a good man because of her but uh, she's got she's a mystic she she has this mystical life with christ as a laywoman and she has cardinals that, you know, really important people that want to converse with her because of her holiness. And she literally kicks them out of the house because she's got to make dinner for her husband. I got to have it here. And, uh, but this woman was, was a mystic. 
And so it can be done in the world just as much as in a convent like Blessed Mary Celeste. And that's not going to be without its troubles as, as her life shows. Yeah, and, you know, I put up on the screen, if you're watching, uh, Blessed Elizabeth Kenori Mora, another book published by Mediatrix Press. And I love this book. I read this not too long ago. And, yes, and she is another great example of a someone who lived this this call to holiness in the world as a, as a married woman, as a mother, and as a spouse. And it's very interesting to me. Uh, the other thing that I thought was interesting was this question of scrupulosity. There was a small section, but whenever it was come, it came back to talking about her development of in the spiritual life of how she became more holy and started advancing. It was said that she uh, hitherto Julia had been the life and the gaiety of the house, gaiety meaning uh, happiness. And her brothers did not at all approve of the change that had come over their little lively sister. They thought it was a case of scruples and tried to laugh her out of it. But Julia, having once been privileged to converse with our Lord, found it almost impossible to spend her time in useless amusements and suffered much in consequence from all their teasing. The thing that stood out to me was this idea of scruples. I was talking with my friend and the other day I was at a wedding and I was just chatting and I was talking about, you know, clothing and why I, I dress like this every day and it's not, and why I think that other people should try to have a greater decorum and a greater um, sublimity in the way they dress and the way they carry themselves. And they were like, don't you think that it's a little too scrupulous to be, to worry about that kind of thing? And my thought immediately was, I don't think most people are scrupulous. Yes, scrupulosity is a real thing that people suffer from. But I think 99% of the time, people who think they're scrupulous are just waking up to the fact that the moral life exists. And that's really what they're dealing with. Right. Uh, what are your yeah, thoughts I, about that? I would say that um, everyone knows that line from Father Ripiger that the devil's not under every rock, but he's under every other rock. Scruples are under every thousandth rock in our current day and age. Right? <laughs> I actually, I do know one person who suffers from legitimate scruples in the spiritual life, and what the what the old theological masters would call that, right? Scruples. And outside of that, I, I don't think I've ever seen a real case of it myself because. We're so morally lax in every way. Whenever you, yeah, it's like you said, you wake up and you discover there's a moral law. All of a sudden, oh no, I might be offending God by doing things that clearly offend God. Oh, I mean, you're just being scrupulous, says everyone else who doesn't mind continuing to offend God. You know, it's, that's really what it comes down to, is that we're so lax, we've lost, we don't have a compass, and and thus you see it there, where what Julia's experience, what is Blessed Mary Celeste, her name in life was Julia, what she experiences is it, it, the phenomenon I call it, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Mm. So that um, now that, you know, she's she's been given to converse in these mystical experiences of their Lord, now you come back down, it's like, what am I, what, what does any of this matter? None of this really matters. Why, why, am, I, why am I still here doing this? So she, she's moving out of it and she's moving in accord with that direction in her life. What there is bad or, or, or ridiculous or nothing. Okay, is she like over the top, uh, you know, maybe whipping herself or something? And some stains have done flagellation. And I think with the spiritual director, there's nothing wrong with self-flagellation, provided you've got a spiritual director you're checking in with, so it doesn't become vanity or something. But, um, you know, it is a practice in the tradition, and I'm just going to emphasize it more because I know that's going to drive certain people today nuts. <laughs> but, um, but scrupulosity 
is one of those things where I'm just, uh, you know, when someone says, oh, yeah, that's just, it sounds over scrupulous to me. It's like, probably not scrupulous enough, really, when you get down to it, because that's what worldly people will then use the excuse of actual scruples, because real scruples are like this. Um, oh, I know I've, uh, you know, I, I just went to confession yesterday and, and, and I received Holy Communion today, but, but I, you know, there was this one time where I, I could have picked something up for someone and I didn't do it. And I wonder if I might've actually sinned and maybe I shouldn't go to communion because I, I picking that up for someone does something I should have done, right? So someone who, you know, on, on the road in the spiritual life and they pause and they get confused because the devil's basically trying to sidetrack them from doing good, especially somebody who's, who's living uh, a life uh, where they're working on the mystical life, they're on you know the, the the stages of mystical growth, as the mystical theologians tell us, and then the devil's trying to sidetrack them because somebody like that who receives communion, they're going to merit an awful lot of grace. They're going to do a lot of good things by continuing to do the work they do, and so the devil then tries to distract them. Maybe you sinned, um, you know? Did did I give fraternal correction when I should have to this person who's doing something that that wouldn't even come to you know uh, to light matter, right? That, that's again, that, was an, that would be another case of scruples. Um, maybe I should stop getting drunk and uh, get break up with my girlfriend and get out of the house. Oh, you said scrupulous. <laughs> that's the equivalent of where we're at today. <laughs> no, yeah, that's 100% correct. That's the thing I've noticed. Uh, but yeah, thank you very much, Ryan Grant. Make sure you go to Mediatrix Press, check out all the books that Ryan has there. I probably own half of them. I own all the ones on, on Dominican Saints, so I highly recommend Mediatrix Press. Go there. And uh, in the next hour, we're going to be talking to St. Paul. Uh, not talking to St. Paul, but we're going to be discussing St. Paul. And all that is coming up next and Catholic Conversations. I'll see you then. Why do Protestants not believe John 6 when it says that Jesus' flesh is real food and that his blood is real drink? I don't know. In Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, Jesus says of the bread, this is my body. He says of the wine, this is my blood. Not this is symbolic of or this represents. He says this is. In John 6, he repeats himself like he does nowhere else in Scripture to emphasize the fact that he expects us to eat his flesh and drink his blood and that his flesh is real food and that his blood is real drink. Anyone who says he is speaking symbolically and not literally simply is refusing to look at all the facts. Fact number one, the Jews took him literally. We see that in verse 52. Fact number two, his disciples took him literally. We see that in verse 60. Fact number three, the apostles took him literally. Verses 67 to 69. If everyone who heard him speak at the time took him literally, then my question is, why does anyone today, 2,000 years after the fact, take him symbolically? Also in verse 51, of John 6, Jesus says that the bread which he will give for the life of the world is his flesh. When did he give his flesh for the life of the world? On the cross. Was that symbolic? If you think Jesus is speaking symbolically here when he says that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood, then you must also conclude that Jesus' death on the cross was only symbolic. It wasn't really Jesus hanging up there. It was symbolic flesh and symbolic blood. Jesus is clearly talking about the flesh that he gave for the life of the world. He did that on the cross. Those who believe he is talking symbolically here in John 6 have a real problem when it comes to John 6, verse 51. Did Jesus give us his real flesh and blood for the life of the world, or was it only his symbolic flesh and blood? A beacon of truth in a troubled world. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. 
in your car, at the office, or in your home. We're always here. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. Welcome back to Catholic Conversations. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. And today, we had a great conversation with Ryan Grant. We talked about scrupulosity. We talked about the enlightenment errors, how Carmelite spirituality combats that. What were the errors of enlightenment? And it kind of sounds like we're talking about today, to be honest. I'm not going to lie to you. And all that was with Ryan Grant. Earlier in the hour, we actually talked about vasectomies and contraception and how Jesse James Decker and Eric Decker, if you know who they are, I actually didn't really know because I don't really keep up with celebrities all that much, but I saw, I thought it was a great opportunity to talk about contraception. And so we talked about that at 15 past the hour in the last hour. And at the beginning and the top of the show, we talked about the first chapter of St. Mark. And I think I want to do, just go through the entire gospel from beginning to end of Mark, and then maybe transition to Luke and then Matthew and then John and not in any particular order. I figured Mark is the shortest one. And then in 30 past the hour, I'm going to uh, jump into your comments. So whatever it is that you want to talk about, if any questions, comments, or concerns, soapboxes, negativities, positivities, or anything in between, be sure to uh, leave your comments and we'll get to those at 30 past the hour. If not, well, then I'm going to talk about something that I'm interested in. I'm going to talk about the Immaculata, Our Lady. And I'm going to read to you all some sections from there if nobody is interested in, in commenting. And so all that is coming up on the show. What we're going to do next is we're going to go over St. Paul's letter to uh, Timothy. And because, you know, today is the feast of the conversion of St. Paul. And I think it's fitting to meditate upon his life and to learn from St. Paul. What can we learn from St. Paul's life, especially in regards to apostolate? I want to apply it very directly and concretely to our lives. So let me begin with this. They, uh, an excerpt from the second epistle to St. Timothy, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and which have been committed to thee, knowing of whom thou hast learned. I charge thee before God and Jesus Christ, who shall judge the living and the dead by his coming and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, entreat, rebuke with all patience and doctrine. For there shall be a time when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and will turn away indeed their hearing from the truth, but will be turned to fables. But be thou vigilant labor in all things, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill thy ministry, be sober. For I am even now ready to be sacrificed. And the time of my dissolution is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. For the rest, there is laid up for me a crown of justice, which the Lord, the just judge, will render to me on that day, and not to me, but to them also who love his coming. The letter uh, from St. Timothy, second epistle to Timothy. Now, I want to go through the comments by Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira, I think he has great insight into this passage, but I also want to reiterate, if uh, you would like, 
share this with someone that you think would be fascinated who would like to join us in the conversation at 30 past the hour or like to learn about how to do apostolate from St. Paul, because that's what we're going to be talking about right now. And make sure you like, like, subscribe, hit the bell notification, all that jazz, comment down below, share it with a friend, and all that. Uh, anyway, Saint, or not Saint, well, I, I personally think Professor Plinio is a saint, but, you know, I'm not, I can't canonize people. So, Professor Plinio, he said that since the description of the conversion of Saint Paul on his way to Damascus has been commented on several times among us, it seems appropriate to analyze the recommendations he left to Saint Timothy, transcribed in these excerpts of the selection. It's not about his conversion, properly speaking, but rather the last testament he left when he felt death was drawing near. In a certain way, it is the best fruit of his conversion. These words in the epistle to Timothy have the gravity of the words of a testament, of the last words of a master to his beloved disciple, when he envisages that he will be leaving his, this life soon. What are the counsels he gives to his disciple? St. Paul was warning Timothy about the coming heresies that would erupt inside the church. Indeed, already in the times of the catacombs, heresies were circulating inside the church. But he was also foreseeing the future of the church until the time of the Antichrist. Therefore, the counsels he gave were not just for Timothy. All the times similar to that beginning and similar to the end times were included in his description. I'll pause here for a second and make a comment. Professor Plinio makes this great point that the scripture applies concretely to Timothy directly. And we see through history that heresies were sprouting in the early church. And it took the faithful men to crush those heresies at the time. But because St. Paul was inspired by the Holy Ghost in writing, these same things apply throughout all of history. And so too in today, in our times, heresy is rampant. In fact, the sin of modernism, the heresy of modernism, is considered the greatest of the heresies, the worst of the heresies. And that is the heresy in which we are fighting today. That's the one that becomes what we have to face in our daily life. And so what does Professor Plano say? He says he alluded to a time to come when many people will no longer maintain the true doctrine. That sounds kind of familiar to us, right? Where many people will not maintain the true doctrine. How many Catholics believe the faith whole and entire? Everyone likes to talk about the fact that the decline in belief in the Holy Eucharist. But how many people believe in the Holy Trinity articulated correctly? How many people know that our Lord is one divine person with two natures, human and divine? How many people know that? There, I saw a Twitter poll the other day asking, is our Lord a divine person, a human person, or a human and divine person. And the vast majority of people voted human and divine person. The Eucharist is one doctrine. It's a very important doctrine. It's very important, but it's not the only one. And people do not know the faith. And because of this, there are so few people who maintain true doctrine. Professor Plano says, but will surround themselves with masters who will say the comfortable things they want to hear. This happens to be our time more than any other before. How many priests do you know who will not talk about the difficult things? How many Catholics do you know who refuse to talk about the hard issues? Who want to try to just make everybody happy to talk about the nice, happy thoughts 
Let's have the warm and fuzzies. Let's talk about the miracle of sharing. But nobody wants to talk about the hard truths. They only want to say what will make people comfortable. Professor Polanyo says, Today, innumerable people do not want to hear true Orthodox Catholic doctrine, but rather listen to masters who give them what they want. For example, a person might say, I want a relaxed Catholic morals so I can live an easier life. Therefore, I will not listen to the Catholics who teach morals as it is, but will listen to those theologians who teach morals as I would like it to be. If your priest never convicts you, if the people that you listen to online, the Catholic commentators, the Catholic celebrities, I don't like the term Catholic celebrities, but it is just the case, the Catholic celebrities, the Catholic commentators, the Catholic priests, the Catholic religious, if those people that you hear, that you talk to, if they never say anything that stirs your soul and makes you uncomfortable and makes you think, wow, I need to change that about myself. I am in error. I need to turn away from my sin and turn towards God. I have to reject myself. If that's something that never occurs, if that's something that never crosses your mind, perhaps you should think, am I the person saying I want a relaxed Catholic morals? And so I will not listen to the Catholics who teach morals as it is, but I would listen to those theologians who teach morals as I would like them to be. Is that you and I? I know oftentimes I like to have my ears tickled. I like to hear people say nice things about me to say I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing things the easy way and the easy way is the right way. I like to hear that, but it's not right. And continues, St. Paul said, they will turn away indeed their hearing from the truth, but will be turned to fables. This is like in today's church, we have all kinds of errors and false doctrines or fables that circulate to, gra to gratify men's depraved instincts and vices. There are countless persons who believe these errors just because they please them. You know, I think often of what our Lord said about the Holy Eucharist. This is a hard saying, who can accept it? But we have a lot of hard sayings in the church. How about there's no salvation outside the church? This is a hard saying, who can accept it? How about I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? How about marriages between one man and one woman? This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? How about divorce? In the beginning, it was not so. This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? This is very important. That these fables, these false teachings can be attractive to us because it can make us justify our sin. And we have to reject that. We have to be vigilant against that because we could easily fall into it because it pleases us. Continuing, what is the first counsel St. Paul gave to face this situation? He ordered, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and which have been committed to thee, knowing of whom thou hast learned. That is, you must persevere in the faith. In that faith, you learn from tradition because you know who taught it. It was St. Paul, a upright man who reliably transmitted to Timothy the true faith. Therefore, his first recommendation for remaining faithful was to follow what had been taught by trustworthy sources. It is an attitude of docility toward the teaching of the Holy Catholic Church. Because remember, remember that we are to hold fast 
to what was given to us that was written down or by word. And the timeless truths, the timeless truths of the church are things that we have to think about and put primary. Whenever we hear new doctrine being proclaimed, things that sound novel to us, we should immediately have our hesitation. We should immediately be a little skeptical and say, why is, it, why is that different from when, what we've always been taught? Why are you saying that now when we've always said the other thing? And that's something to keep in mind. We should always keep in mind that the, the traditions that have been passed to us are there for a reason. And maybe, just maybe, there could be something that is a legitimate change, something legitimately that we can grow in knowledge. But those things that we can grow in knowledge about, they will not, let me repeat, they will not be things that are completely in rejection of the past. Because our knowledge of the past is something that is, that is good, true, and beautiful. So even like if you think geocentrism is the most whack thing in the world, you have to admit that geocentrism did have predictive power. And that when we created the heliocentric model of the universe, saying that we revolve around the sun, we had to have the same explanatory power. The same thing happens with tradition in the church. When we have these doctrines that are true, and we want to develop those doctrines, they cannot have an altogether different meaning than they had in the past. They have to still be directed to the same point, to the same end. And so we should immediately be skeptical if someone is contradicting those things. Now, sometimes that may be the case, that we do have to contradict certain smaller things, some small details, especially when it comes to things like discipline. But when that happens, we have to give deference to tradition first. Because those things were put into place for a reason. It's kind of like Chesterton's fence, saying that we should not tear down a fence until we know why it was put there. We have to understand the doctrines and the tradition of the church, understand it well and fully, fully see the big picture. And once we can fully see the big picture, only then can we start saying, okay, how exactly was this wrong? Was it wrong in a small detail? Or is it just imperfect and we can more perfectly articulate? That's the deference that we should have to tradition, the things that happened in the past. And that's what I implore you to think about. When we come back, we'll finish this lessons from St. Paul. And when we're finished with the lessons from St. Paul, we will then go into the after show and talk to you directly. See what are your thoughts, questions, comments, concerns, soapboxes, negativities, positivities, or anything in between. Make sure you like, subscribe, share, hit the bell notification, leave a comment down below, and make sure to share with someone that you think would want to join in this conversation. So start leaving comments down below. We'll get to those at 30 past the hour. We'll be right back. Why do Protestants not believe John 6 when it says that Jesus' flesh is real food and that his blood is real drink? I don't know. In Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, Jesus says of the bread, this is my body. He says of the wine, this is my blood. Not this is symbolic of or this represents. He says this is 
In John 6, he repeats himself like he does nowhere else in Scripture to emphasize the fact that he expects us to eat his flesh and drink his blood and that his flesh is real food and that his blood is real drink. Anyone who says he is speaking symbolically and not literally simply is refusing to look at all the facts. Fact number one, the Jews took him literally. We see that in verse 52. Fact number two, his disciples took him literally. We see that in verse 60. Fact number three, the apostles took him literally. Verses 67 to 69. If everyone who heard him speak at the time took him literally, then my question is, why does anyone today, 2,000 years after the fact, take him symbolically? Also, in verse 51 of John 6, Jesus says that the bread which he will give for the life of the world is his flesh. When did he give his flesh for the life of the world? On the cross. Was that symbolic? If you think Jesus is speaking symbolically here when he says that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood, then you must also conclude that Jesus' death on the cross was only symbolic. It wasn't really Jesus hanging up there. It was symbolic flesh and symbolic blood. Jesus is clearly talking about the flesh that he gave for the life of the world. He did that on the cross. Those who believe he is talking symbolically here in John 6 have a real problem when it comes to John 6, verse 51. Did Jesus give us his real flesh and blood for the life of the world, or was it only his symbolic flesh and blood? A beacon of truth in a troubled world. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. We're back with Catholic Conversations. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. And at 30 past the hour, we're going to get to your comments, your questions, comments, or concerns, soapboxes, negativities, positivities, or anything in between. All that at 30 past the hour. But right now, we're talking about lessons from St. Paul. What can he teach us about apostolate? So we're going to continue. Professor Plinio says, we can apply this counsel to our times. The priests from older generations who were worthy heirs of the past faith transmitted to us a teaching that was true. We know the tradition of the church, and therefore we know what is the true faith. This well-transmitted tradition gives us condition to know the truth. The thing that the church taught yesterday cannot have become errors today. What was once true is true forever. Therefore, if some contradiction exists, the error is in the novelty, not in what is established. So Catholics who persevere in the faith are traditionalists who remain faithful to the same faith of the past. Then St. Paul gives his second counsel. He says, I charge thee before God and Jesus Christ, who shall judge the living and the dead by his coming in his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove and treat, rebuke with all patience and doctrine. After fidelity to faith and tradition, St. Paul placing himself before Christ ordered his disciples to preach the word of God. It is a recommendation for priests. We are laymen and as such, we cannot preach the word of God. But we should transmit the word preached by authentic priests, those who are faithful to the past. Now, after addressing how Timothy himself should remain faithful, St. Paul looked toward others. He must spread the good word. How should, you, how should he do it, he said? Be instant in season, out of season, which means you must insistently preach the word, whether people like or dislike it. It is a way to say, be a man, be a fighter. You must enter the combat. You must spread the word every way you can as a soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, this is important. This is very important. That we, you and I, we have an obligation to preach the word of God. 
we have an obligation to tell people the truth of the gospel, whether they like it or not. And sometimes it can be hard. Sometimes it can be a little scary because you don't know how people are going to react. Are they going to freak out? Are they going to yell at you? Are they going to attack you? It's a possibility. We have to be prepared for that possibility, right? However, we have to be fighters. You have to be a man and stand up, stand up straight. Look the person in the eye and out of charity, charity, tell them the truth. Whether they like it or they dislike it. Because the truth is the truth, no matter what. It doesn't matter if someone likes it or not. And that's what St. Paul recommended. And that is what we must do. Because we must not be afraid of spreading the truth. Professor Plinio goes on. He says, we must never retreat. We must not be upset if people pay no attention. Or even if they react badly. We must teach the same thing again and again. With supernatural virality. This is our duty and our way to give glory to God. This is important as well. That people may ignore you. They may hate you. They may deride you. But almost, almost the worst thing they can do is ignore you. But it is not your responsibility to be successful in this situation. It is your responsibility to heed the commands of St. Paul and of our Lord. To breach the gospel to the four corners of the earth. That is our responsibility. And God will use your skills. Obviously, we want to cultivate our skills to be the best tools, the best instruments that God can have. But at the end of the day, it is God's grace that's going to move the souls because the wounds of Christ are flaming arrows that pierce the hardest hearts and the, and the coldest souls. So we give glory to God by our faithfulness, by our endurance, our willingness to tell the truth despite what anyone else says or does. He continues, then he ordered to reprove, entreat, rebuke with all patience and doctrine. There is a certain school of apostolate that pretends that one should never reprove others, but should always be gentle and amiable. The prophet Nathan was not of this school, since he reproved David. St. John the Baptist did not belong to it either, for he reproved Herod. This is the way the true Catholic acts. This is another important point. How often do we refrain from telling the truth or we try to word it in the nicest way possible in order that we don't offend? Now, I'm also guilty of this, and I don't necessarily believe that this is always a vice. However, I know personally sometimes I'll keep my mouth shut in circumstances that I probably should have said something. I probably should have stood up and fought for our Lord or corrected someone or said something that was according to the truth of the gospel. But out of fear or out of a desire for human respect, I kept silent or I worded it in such a way that it could easily be dismissed, like something along the lines of, well, you know, I think it would be better if you possibly did it this way. By saying, talking like that, you are basically saying, this is optional. This is my suggestion. Take it or leave it. But this is not what we're talking about. The truth of the gospel, the truth of morality, the truth that we try to give, it is not a soft faith. It is not a soft truth. It is something that is firm. And if we present it firmly, people may react badly, 
but it presents it accurately and truly to present the truth, which is rock solid, which is a foundation, a pillar to present it as soft is to do disservice to the truth. Continuing entreat rebuke with all patient doctrine to reprove is not enough. It is necessary to entreat when the sinner is hardened in his fault, he should be reproved. But when he is repentant, we must act with goodness and implore him to leave his error and practice virtue. We must be humbled and like a beggar beseech him. It is the moment for fraternal affection and charity. And so Professor Plinio showing how balanced he is, how he understands the fullness of the situation says, yes, we have to correct. But also when they, they repent, when we're leading them to repentance, we also have to have charity. We have to love that person and welcome them home when they are starting to, re, to reject their former life. I think that's also another thing that we have to keep in mind. Continuing, we must also be patient in our counsels. When the offender is ashamed of his sin, we should never give him the impression that he is a bother to us, that we are tired of him. We should show him all the patience possible, but also we should give him good doctrinal guidance. We should offer good counsels based on serious arguments in order to enlighten his intelligence and move his will. This is very important. We have to be patient, and I am so guilty of this. I am so guilty of this. I am not a very patient person. And so after a few days of conversing with someone and we start hitting the same points over and over again, and it feels like I'm talking to a brick wall, I lose patience and, and I give the impression that, I, that he is bothering me or she is bothering me. And that is, a, that is a grave evil because by my impatience, by me showing that I'm being bothered, by not having this holy indifference and charity to the soul, it could be to my detriment. It could be my fault that that person leaves and never comes back and despises the faith because of my wickedness. And that's something that we should keep in mind that we, that we have charity and patience with those who are not at the same level as us, that we're trying to get them to where we want them, namely the salvation of their soul, namely heaven. We'll continue. And this right here will conclude in these few paragraphs, St. Paul gave a full doctrinal lesson on how to be faithful and how to do apostolate. His advice is comforting for us because it is the way that we as Catholics are living today. From the far distance of past centuries, the voice of St. Paul speaking to St. Timothy comes to us as if he were saying, my sons, you are on the right path. Count on my prayers and protection from heaven. We ask him that in point of fact, he bless us and give us the fullness of his spirit. What do we mean by the fullness of his spirit? Obviously, we don't mean the spirit of the Holy Ghost, which is the spirit of Christ. Obviously, we don't mean salvation. What we do mean is the spirit of faithfulness and how to do apostolate. This idea that we have to entreat, rebuke, but with all patience and doctrine. That is how we do apostolate. St. Paul makes it very, very clear. We go to the person. 
and we come to them and we present the truth of the gospel to them and show them, this is where I want you. I desire your salvation because I love you. We have to rebuke. We recognize the errors. We hate the sin. We love the sinner. We hate what is evil. We love what is good. So we rebuke. We point out, this is where you're wrong. You should not be sleeping with your girlfriend. You should not be living with your concubine, with your, with your living girlfriend. You should not be eating so much. You're committing the sin of gluttony. You should not be so lazy. Instead, do some spiritual works. Pray the rosary. We have to rebuke. But we rebuke what is evil. We don't rebuke the person in the sense that he is good. We rebuke the person knowing that he could be so much better. And then with all patience and doctrine, St. Paul shows us this is the way in which we do it with patience and with doctrine. Let's start with the latter, with the doctrine. We have to know the faith. As Catholics living in the 21st century, we do not have the luxury of just listening to our priest. We do not have the luxury of just believing what we're told about the faith. We have to know the doctrine. That means we have to get traditional sources of knowledge. I recommend Tradivox, which is a, a collection of old catechisms. A lot of them are very easy to read, for made for kids, but are great for us, you and I. This way of learning the doctrine of the faith from trustworthy sources. Read the lives of the saints. Read what the saints wrote. Read the Bible. Read St. Thomas Aquinas. We need to understand the doctrine of the church first because we cannot correct properly if we don't know the faith. And then with patience. Sometimes you have to walk people through something very slowly and you have to take small, small steps one by one and walk with that person, meet them where they're at and take them where they're going. That is the patience that we need. It is a supernatural patience. So we should pray that we have the spirit of St. Paul and we're able to grow in patience and knowledge of doctrine. So that way we may have the proper attitude to entreat and rebuke others so that way they may be saved. Let's pray for this today. All right, thank you guys for joining me. We're going to go off for a second and then we'll come back on for the after show and talk to those who are joining us on live stream. So make sure you like, subscribe, hit the bell notification. And let me know, what do you think? Should we do more of these? Let me know what you think in the comment section down below. I'll be back in about eh, 20 seconds, maybe less, 15 seconds. And we're back. Probably not even 20 seconds. Probably less than 20 seconds. Oi. Yeah, these live streams, doing a whole show by yourself is um, kind of exhausting. But here's where we let your hair down. And we chat a little more casually. A loyal Catholic says on the live stream, on the uh, chat, in the chat box, says, Ryan Grant is probably one of my, I'm assuming my favorite Catholic YouTube talking heads. Yeah, Ryan is great. I love uh, his uh, the books he puts out with Mediatrix Press. And also, 
he is just a great commentator, and I would like to have him on just to commentate about stuff in general. Uh, but also, I want to promote his his bookstore and promote his books. I know his wife is very sick. He's raising, he's trying to take care of his kids right now, and also take care of his sick wife. And so, I, I really want to promote his books for that reason. But also, they're just great books. I've never got a Mediatrix Press book that I didn't enjoy. So that is also something that's interesting. But yeah, he's great. Uh, Ryan Grant, class act. Uh, Brooks Durham said, great talk as usual. And I agree 100%. I think you're talking about the vasectomy thing. Uh, but yeah, thank you very much uh, for agreeing about uh, the, the the talk. And that is everybody. Not not a huge crowd. I don't think, um, you know, we're just starting. This is the second, second stream that we've done. And we'll have more in the future. But for right now, this is our second stream and we haven't done much else. So if you are listening right now, then make sure you leave a comment, introduce yourself. Um, let me know what you want to talk about. If there's nothing that you want to talk about, then I will read to you a little bit from the Immaculata and we'll talk a little bit about Our Lady. That's always a fun topic. But I, I kind of just want to just chat a little bit and not, not have to uh, do any more reading. I'm a little tired. It is 6.30. The sun has already gone down. You know, it's the end of the day. It's time for bed. Actually, you know what I have to do? I actually need to stop at Bass Pro Shop or some kind of, like, academy-like thing. What's the best place that's, like, academy? I need to get some fishing stuff. That's very, very important because I'm going out fishing tomorrow. Uh, but I don't own anything for fishing. And I need to get some, like, stuff for, like, um, seasickness. And I don't know what to buy, so I need to go and do that as well. So right now, I'm struggling with, with that. So maybe I'll leave work early so I can go do that. But, you know, mm, not 100% not sure what I'm going to do. However, I don't know. Maybe we'll just go to Academy. Academy is easy. It's an easy place to go. Everybody knows where it is. They usually don't have great stuff, though. Hardly ever, really. But, you know, it is what it is. But let me see. Let me get this book. Oh. The book is The Immaculata, or Ideal, by Father Carl Stylen. Stylen? Stylen? The Spirit of the Emisha Immaculata, according to Father Maximilian Colby. This is the book I'm looking at. The book, This I think the priest is a... A Polish priest, so he kind of he knows knows pretty well. So, if no one has any comments, I'm gonna read this to y'all. And if y'all are, um, if y'all want to chime in at any point, feel free, and we'll get to the comments. But without further ado, let me just read this to you guys. I was thinking about pulling out some um, sections here that I had noted, but at the same time, maybe it would just be a good practice, you know. Whenever there's nobody on the stream, nothing to do, nothing to talk about, start reading through it, and then maybe at some point we'll actually finish the book together. Um, maybe. Let me know. Is that something that would be interesting to you? So I'd read a couple pages here, a couple pages there, and it's not a hugely large book. It's only like 190 pages-ish. And, and do you read prefaces and introduction? I wonder. I usually will skim the preface introduction and then, and then get on with it. But 
it just depends, you know. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're kind of frustrating to get through for some reason. But I'll read the introduction. I'll skip the preface and go to the introduction. Okay. Chapter one. A militia versus pacifism. Oh, wait, that's chapter one. That's not the introduction. Um, introduction. Through Mary, the salvation of the world began. And through Mary, it must also be completed, wrote St. Louis Maria Grinon de Montfort almost 300 years ago. In these troubled times of the great apostasy, she is our refuge in the way that leads to God. In order to show us this way, she selected among others great saints whose work has become a shining light for those who are seeking the truth. One of these great Marian souls is Maximilian Kolbe, who founded a movement that he called the Knighthood of the Immaculata, Militia Immaculata. In Rome, on October 16, 1917, three days after the miracle of the sun in Fatima, the nature, history, and purpose of this movement had already been presented briefly in a small booklet. This book intends to help bring the light the great importance of this movement, particularly for our times. To accomplish this, the saintly founder himself will be allowed to have his say. With astonishing simplicity, he awakens in every soul the experiences that the attraction of his teaching, a great ideal, the Immaculata and her significance in the life of the individual of society, of the church, and of the whole world, we discover that he is a tireless defender of Catholic tradition, a mortal enemy of liberalism and modernism, which plague the world and the church today. His movement is a precursor of all those movements, which in an age that has witnessed the triumph of God's enemies, remain unwaveringly loyal to our Lord and to his Holy Mother, and thus work effectively for the welfare of souls. The Militia Immaculata is a movement within the Catholic Church and has a specific mission from her. In this way, the movement performs invaluable service to the mystical body of Christ. It is spirituality and theocentric, focused entirely on God. The Knight of the Immaculata discovers first in the militia what is most important, the one thing necessary, namely that he was created not for this life, nor for a paradise on earth, but rather for God, and that he lives in order to give him honor. Thus he finds himself on the firm ground of the truth and now asks himself how he can correspond to it. The heart of the Militia Immaculata is the secret of the Immaculata. She is the guiding star, the quintessential element in the life of Father Kolbe. This is the secret of his incredible success, but also the secret of his own sanctity. From the moment when she appeared to the 10-year-old boy and offered him two crowns to choose from until his heroic death in Auschwitz, she was the overarching reality of his life. He acknowledged her as the mold of God, which quickly and surely forms each one of her children and transforms them into Christ, even to the utmost degree of sanctity. He saw as his great mission the task of making her known and loved by souls. One who wants to attain a goal also wants the means to that end. The knighthood requires spiritual weapons in order to fight the good fight and to win the battle. Yet it is not the quality of the weapons alone that proves the caliber of the army but also the way in which these knights learn to use these weapons. In other words, Maximilian Kolbe does not remain at the level of theory. 
he gives a simple but effective and practical introduction to the spiritual life. Besides good weapons and good soldiers, an army also needs order, a structure. Some activities depend on the individual, others on the community. Still others require an elite, which not only takes on the most difficult assignments, but also constitutes the powerhouse that keeps the entire movement from becoming weak and superficial. The importance of the militia Immaculata in the recent periods of world history is demonstrated by its position among the great Marian events of the last two centuries. The militia Immaculata offers the banished children of Eve a great consolation. What traditional Catholics today are trying to maintain was lived out previously in the first half of the 20th century by an almost countless host of Mary's knights with St. Maximilian Kolbe in the lead. May this assurance produce lasting fruits so that zealous servants of Mary might arise through all the world, true apostles of the latter times, who will point out the narrow way to God and pure truth according to the Holy Gospel and not according to the maxims of the world. The author wishes to express his special thanks to his confreres. And then this is just uh, thanks. I thought that was excellent. Excellent little introduction, actually. And that reference he says here about the true apostle latter times, that's a, uh, a reference to St. Louis uh, de Mumford and his apostolic, his fiery prayer about those souls who will be there at the end, at the end times. And I did a, a podcast on that, actually, that prayer. I highly recommend it, checking out uh, the fiery prayer. I think if you look it up on my channel, you will find it. And it's excellent. This prayer is so beautiful, so stunning. And it really stirs the heart, makes you really think um, loud and clear about who we should be and how we should act. What is our relation to God and as apostles of the latter times? Like, should we settle for how we are today? I don't think so. I think we are made for greatness. We are made to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Anyway, I'm going to continue reading if no one has any comments, but questions, comments, concerns, soapbox, negativities, positivities, or anything in between. Again, like, subscribe, hit the bell notification, share with some friend, and leave a comment down, and we can chat about whatever it is that you want to talk about, um, whether it be something apologetics, whether it be something about what we talked about today, whether it be about what I'm reading right now. Uh, feel free to comment down below, but if no one's going to comment, I'll continue reading. Chapter 1, A Militia versus Pacifism. The Militia Immaculata is a movement within the church. The church on earth is called the church militant because she has to wage a perpetual war against Satan and sin, the deadly enemies of God and of the salvation of mankind. The fighting spirit is essential to the church on earth. God established in a single enmity, which lasts from the beginning of the human race unto all eternity. Quote, I will place enmity between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed, she will crush your head, but you will strike at her heel. And quote Genesis 3.15. From that moment on, the world was divided in two, into two camps, which continually fight against each other. The entire history of the chosen people is a battle between God and the devil in his many guises. In the gospel, the Savior returns again and again to this fundamental law. No one can serve two masters. How broad is the way that leads to destruction? How narrow and rough the way to salvation? 
about him it was said, he is set for the fall and the resurrection of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be contradicted. He that is not with me is against me. St. John, who writes most often and most profoundly about the love of Christ, and who is often cited by modernists as the herald of love, the harbinger of ecumenism, that all may be one, is precisely the one who emphasizes most pointedly the contradiction between Christ and the world. Quote, he was in the world and the world knew him not. He came on to his own and his own received him not. If the world hate you, know ye that it had hated me before you. If you had been of the world, the world would love its own. But I have chosen you out of the world. And in his first epistle, he concisely states the fundamental principle. Love, not the world, nor the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the charity of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the concupiscence of the flesh and of the concupiscence of the eyes and the pride of life, which is not of the Father, but is of the world. St. Paul and the church fathers know no other doctrine. St. Augustine in particular sums up salvation history as the unceasing battle between the city of God and the city of the devil. This fundamental idea of Christianity is found in all the saints without exception. It is also significant that there is complete unanimity, unanimity about the fact that in the end times, this war will increase in intensity, that the devil will win more and more victories so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. It is not surprising then that the mother of God in her major apparitions, especially in La Salette and Fatima, describes the final phase of the battle and calls on her faithful children to take up the powerful weapons that she gives us. After all, she appeared precisely in order to stand beside us in the battle and to show us the, the surest way which leads to victory. In this age of the decisive battle, this is the expression that the mother of God used in speaking to Sister Lucia. It has pleased heaven to call together little armies, which under the banner of the Immaculata, raises the gauntlet and throw it down in front of the enemy, just as young David confronted mighty Goliath. One of these little fighting forces is the militia Immaculata. Precisely because the battle is growing more fierce, the Lord raises up servants who are not only aware of this war like all the other movements in the church, but who deliberately keep this ideal of the soldier in mind and position themselves in the vanguard of the battle Look the enemy straight in the eye, tear off his mask, and fight against him. This is a quote from Sreznark Naipolo. These Polish names, my friend, these Polish names are terrible. But I believe this is a quote from, I'm hoping there is there a a reference here somewhere that I can read so I can see who this is from. I think this is a quote from um, the, whatchamacallit, from, I'm, I'm blanking, Maximilian Colby. Hey, thank you. Thank you very much. I think there's a quote from Maximilian Colby, and it's telling me that this is a, a specific citation from Maximilian Colby. He's giving me that. But anyway, here's the quote. Yeah, this is a quote from Maximilian Colby. We are not just her children, though we are also her knights, and the duty of a knight is to fight. Today, however, more than ever, this battle is our sacred duty. 
For the truth of Christ and the church are being attacked by the godless. In no uncertain terms, hordes of agitators for the cause of unbelief and immorality, revolutionaries who often still bear the name of Christians, many of them are Jews, but are full of pagan customs and Bolshevist slogans not only creep through the residential districts and the factory towns, but like disgusting and repulsive vermin, they make their way even into the most remote villages in order to spread among the rural masses the revolutionary slogans and to uproot faith and trust in the church from the hearts of simple folk. What should we do then? We are the Knights of the Immaculata. Today, we must steadfastly and resolutely declare on which side we stand. Under the banner of Christ and his ranks, and the regiment of his immaculate mother, or under Satan's flag, the flag of insurrection and perversion, of hatred of God. Here there is no settlement or compromise. For our Lord Jesus Christ himself said, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. We, the Knights of the Immaculata, have made our decision. Wow, this is a good quote. Hmm. Anyway, I'll continue. If no one has any more comments, let me check real quick. Let's see. Linda Hernandez just commented, said, I agree about Ryan Grant, about being the one of the best Catholic talking heads. Yeah, for sure. Ryan Grant, he's a boss. Honestly, I could have just let him talk the whole time and not said anything, and he would have been fine. It might be a good show. Maybe to have him back on, talk about scrupulosity. Might be an interesting interesting conversation to have. Anyway, if anyone has any questions, comments, or concerns, soapbox and negativities, positivities, or anything in between, make sure to leave them in the comment section now, and we can chat about whatever it is you want to talk about. Uh, if, if not, I will continue reading this book. I am uh, in chapter one. I got through the introduction so far, and maybe I'll read the whole thing to you guys. This is... Um, the Immaculata, Our Ideal, by Father Carl Stylin, The Spirit of the Militia Immaculata, According to Father Maximilian Colby. That's the book. And uh, I will continue reading unless someone has comments. Okay. Let's see. Continuing. It probably does not need to be said how contrary all of this is to the spirit of the modern age. Today, pacifism reigns within the church. We are all brothers and sisters. There is no longer an enemy, so, to, so they say. Peace first and foremost in the, cath, in the catch word is the catch word. But, there, but thereby they cunningly confuse efforts for the end of armed hostilities with the peace of God. They say that God does not want war and so he wants peace. It follows that we must come to an understanding with those who believe differently. Accept them, acknowledge their values, and work together with them. All men are men of goodwill, anyhow, and that is why we are building up a new world of peace and happiness. This is what the enemy says with the forked tongue. Apart from the fact that such slogans have been used for centuries by the mortal enemies of the church, such a proclamation is the worst crime against the souls that can be committed. There is a war going on, the enemy is attacking, and our generals not only lay down their arms, but even call the enemy a friend, embrace him, and do not notice that in a very sophisticated way, 
Someone is stabbing them in the back. This is the crisis in the church, which delivers souls into the bondage of Satan with hardly any resistance whatsoever. Opposing this is the little militia Immaculata. By itself, it would be ridiculous, but in reality, it is she, the woman, who tramples the serpent, who is terrible as an army set in battle array, the new Judith who cut off Holyfern's head, the woman who alone has received the magnificent promise that she would crush the head of Satan. The Immaculata is the one who fights and wins in us, through us, and with us. As Maximilian Kolbe says, we, are, we all stand as one man under the banner of the woman who alone has conquered all heresies, who is also able to help us against the hydra of contemporary godlessness. I'll pause here. Let's see. Linda said, I struggle with scrupulosity. Yeah, maybe it'll be a good idea to do a show on scrupulosity. I think sometimes I, ha I can, I have feelings of scrupulosity. However, I think, I think Ryan is right about scrupulosity. I think what we call scrupulosity is oftentimes not actually scrupulosity. I think oftentimes whenever we're coming to the faith at the beginning, when we're new to the faith, or we're maybe not necessarily new to the faith, but we're going deeper in our faith for the first time. I think we often wake up to our sins and to our wickedness, to our evils. We wake up and realize we are not good people. We are bad people, which is why we, when we read the lives of the saints, their lives are beautiful. You see their lives, you see their actions, you see their words, and you're, you think to yourself, what a sublime life. What a beautiful way of living. And then when we examine ourselves in our own lives, we see an ugliness, a badness. And that can turn us and make us upset. And we, can, and we can recognize that something is not right in us. And we try to fix those things. And then we start talking about it to others. And we talk about it to our friends, our family, our coworkers, people around us. And people who are not at that point in their spiritual life, who are not blessed to, to have been exposed to the faith that you have, they react badly. They, they turn and they are like, you're crazy. What do you mean I can't sleep with my spouse or my, uh, my girlfriend, my live-in girlfriend? What do you mean I should dress better? What do you mean I should veil at church? These kind of things that seem to be small, insignificant things. Whenever we love God, whenever we understand what God has commanded of us, and the standard in which he has set for us. I don't think it's scrupulous to hold ourselves to that standard. But when we talk to others, we think we're scrupulous because other people tell us. They're saying, oh, you're being too scrupulous. Don't worry so much about it. Oh, that's not a mortal sin, so don't worry about it. Remember, our Lord doesn't desire us to commit any sin. Not even venial. So I think oftentimes we are not actually being scrupulous. Now, some people do, in fact, struggle from scrupulosity. That is a real thing. And that has to be distinguished from OCD. So, for instance, if you did confess your sins and then you walk out of the confessional and you say, okay, I wasn't sorry enough. I, I could have been more sorry. And so you are now not wanting to receive communion. That's a spirit of scrupulosity. But if you're telling yourself, you walk out of the confessional and you think, I am so bad. 
I am still such a horrible person. That is the right attitude because you should stir within your soul before receiving communion and after confession, a intense and real sorrow for your sins. So that way you would not commit them again. And there's a twofold element to this. One, we have to realize that we are so much worse than we think we are. And the further you grow in holiness, the more you realize how unholy you are and how wretched your life is. I think about this because the saints talk about this, how they look at themselves and they say, I, the worst of sinners. And you're reading their lives and you're thinking, you're the worst of sinners. If you're the worst of sinners, what am I? And, but they are the worst of sinners because one, they know better and they choose to do otherwise. And two, because they realize that they should be perfect. And so we too should have that attitude. So yes, scrupulosity is real. It's a real thing that people suffer from, but I don't think most people do. I think most of us, you and I are probably suffering not from scrupulosity, but from a lack of scrupulosity. We justify our sins. And I'm not making any judgment on you individually because I don't know your personal life, but I'm just speaking for myself. And I think that it applied to a lot of other people. I think a lot of people will relate to, to my own um, analysis of my soul and my current, my current place in life. That's kind of my thoughts on scrupulosity. And there's much more that could be said. And maybe I'll do some research and, and maybe we can do a segment on scrupulosity or finding someone who'll be a good interview to talk about scrupulosity. Uh, but I find most, most priests are the same way. I was like what I was reading from professor, professor Plinio talking about uh, St. Lessons from St. Paul. So many priests today just want to tickle your ears. They want to tell you things that will make you feel good and they don't want to actually challenge you. And because of that, they will tell you you're scrupulous whenever really you're not. You're not doing things that are, that are that rigorous. Now, if you're scourging yourself every night to the point of blood and, and, you're, and it's causing problems, well, yeah, that, that's overly scrupulous. If you, if you start believing there is no possibility that you can be saved, well, yeah, 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 that's definitely a scrupulosity. You should, not, you should not have those thoughts. We have to trust in the mercy of God. So, yeah, there is elements that will be really real scrupulosity, but I don't know. Those are, those are my cursory thoughts. Um, it is... Two minutes to the end of the show, and then I'm going to take off. I'm going to take a nap. I'm a little tired. I'm going to take a nappy nap. Uh, thank you, Linda, for chiming in. I appreciate the comments. Otherwise, I was just going to continue reading this book, which is a good book. I'm enjoying it so far. But um, honestly, my voice is tired, and reading takes more energy than just chatting for some reason. I don't know. I think it's the way I read. I, I think I read too mechanically. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, what do you think? Do I read poorly? Well, I don't know. I try to take criticism well. I don't know if I do or not. We'll see. Um, tomorrow, I won't do this. But let me know in the comment section or in the live chat. Would you like to see more things like this? Maybe I can make this a weekly thing, a Monday, Wednesday, Friday thing, like a, a, a driving home time show. Um, and maybe it'll be a little bit different, maybe only an hour, something like that. Let me know what your thoughts are because I kind of enjoy it, but I'm also very tired. A long day at work and then doing this, it's a little much, uh, but I think it might be fruitful for some people. It might be enjoyable. So if you think that this is something that you would be interested in, let me know. 
And if it, if it is, then uh, we'll do more of it. Okay. So, Linda says, "Excellent reader. Thank you." See, I really, in in reality, I was just fishing for comment for uh, compliments. All right, that's the music. That means it's time for bed. So thank you very much for joining me, whoever is joining me live. And if you're watching it uh, after the fact and you made it all the way to the end, let me know that you made it all the way to the end. I don't know. Uh, leave in the comment section below what your favorite part of the show was uh, if you made it to the end. So uh, thank you very much. God bless you. God love you. Make sure to like, subscribe, hit the bell notification. You get notified if I do this in the future. And I will uh, And make sure you leave a comment. Share this with someone that you think would be interested in this. And if you're watching after the fact, make sure you comment to let us know that you want more things like this. And I will make sure to try to make this more available maybe once a week, maybe on Wednesdays, uh, maybe Tuesday, Thursdays. I don't know. Something like that. Let me know. All right. God bless you. God love you. I'll see you all. If you all join me in the morning on Catholic Drive Time, 6 to 8 a.m. Central on Catholic Drive Time. If not, I'll see you whenever I do this again. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on Your Catholic Drive Time where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired. Join us Monday through Friday at the same time, right here on your favorite Catholic radio station.